We are now in our second to last of our sermons in this book of Ecclesiastes in this series called What's the Point? Now, I think it's been actually pretty, pretty interesting and pretty great just kind of digging into this book, this strange and odd book, which can seem sort of depressing if you're not looking at it through the right lens. And so I've enjoyed going through this with you. And today as we, as we do this, we're in uh, chapter 8 and it's all about what's the point of being good? What's the point of good deeds, doing right? You know, you even think about, so you, you people get points for going to church on coronavirus time change Sunday. You know, it's like, crowns in heaven will specifically be engraved with that, all right? It's like a special badge. And so, you know, but that kind of thing where we think of like, I got to go today because I got to, I have to do right. I have to do the right thing. And so what's the point of all of that? What's the point of good works, doing right, any of it? And so as we do, we look into Ecclesiastes 8. So I encourage you to grab your Bibles. If you brought one, there's one in the back of the seat in front of you. There's also in your bulletins is this little uh, handout, right? This little outline. And on the back of it, I put Ecclesiastes 8, 12 to 17 in both the New American Standard Bible edition, the version there. Uh, it's what we normally use, but I also put it in the New Living Translation. It's a little just even again, New American Standard, a little more, little more literal word for word translation. New Living is a little more thought for thought and written to be easier to understand in modern language. And is actually even written at kind of like a lower grade reading level, you know, so that it kind of helps just make it simpler, which I actually recommend at times. I even think some books on hard topics, it's good to read like the kids version and then you'll actually understand it. So if you ever, you know, if you ever have things that are hard, hard topics, even apologetics, like we joke about that, but like some of these like philosophical apologetics things, like read the kids version and then you'll actually get it for the first time. But um, that's New Living's not a kid's Bible, but uh, it is helpful. So I'm going to read this Ecclesiastes 8, 12 to 17. I'll read NASB, but certain parts you kind of look over and, and get a little bit more in the New Living. Um, I'm going to just read it from my actual Bible, though. So, uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 12 to 17. It says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know it will be well for those who fear God. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he doesn't fear God. Now, verse 14, so he seems to say here, okay, so it's, it's better to, to fear God. It'll go well if you don't. And then he says, there's futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. Now, even, okay, NLT, it's just like, that's not all that's meaningless in this life. Good people are often treated as though they're wicked. Wicked people are often treated as though they're good. Just kind of gets to the point a little bit easier there. Um, so he says, I say that's all to futility. Verse 15. So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, to drink, and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Another reminder here, under the sun, remember as we read Ecclesiastes, what under the sun means is in a world sort of apart from God, in a world that, in a life that is lived without God's influence, without God's presence there, that's what under the sun means when you read Ecclesiastes. 
<clears throat> so in that world under the sun, yeah, just forget it. Just, just party. Just eat, drink, and be merry. It doesn't matter. Verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. All right, so what is all that about? What are we looking at here when it comes to this whole thing of What's the point of being good? Because this, this verse says good people are going to be treated like wicked people. And wicked people are going to be treated like good people should be treated. So like, what's the point, he basically says. And that's the whole thing with this series. What's the point of doing good? That there has to be more than this. But the author just says, because of all that under the sun, just have fun because it's all meaningless. It's all smoke. It's like something you can't grab onto. You can't really catch, catch it because it has no depth of meaning. And so I'd like to walk us through some of this. Now, first of all, why do we do good? I say because we do good to show our love for Jesus, not to earn his love. Okay? We do good to show our love for Jesus, not to earn something, not to earn his love. And that's the thing is, is we got to be able to, we're going to look into Ecclesiastes. We're going to look into some other parts of scripture as well, because it's this key passage here where he just says, all right, here's the thing. It's all meaningless. Good people are treated bad. Bad people are, good people are treated like they're bad and bad people are treated like they're good. It's this big question that we all have of why do bad things happen to good people? But first, as we kind of get into this thing of we do this to show our love for God, not to earn his love, we have to look outside of Ecclesiastes because he's just kind of, he's meaningless here. But Jesus brings us into this where he says himself, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Okay? So the one who loves, if you love Jesus, we have his commands and we have a, a book that we've been given of his commands. We have all of this. But not just having them, not just knowing them, but actually keeping them. That is the one who loves God. So we can express and show our love for God in that way, even though it's all meaningless. Okay, even though this whole thing of bad things happening to good people, good things happening to bad people. And so I want to answer this question for a little bit of why. So this question that many of us have, why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why do bad things happen to good people? So a couple questions or a couple things for us to think about. One is this, would a good God Because a lot of people maybe even believe that there's God, but is God good? Would a good God create a world where real genuine love is possible or a world where real genuine love is impossible? Okay, would a good God create a world where love is possible or impossible? You probably think, okay, well, yeah, yeah, I'm supposed to say, right? A good God would say it's a world where real genuine love is possible. And that's what we want. That's what we believe from a good God. And so for that to be, for there to be real genuine love and the ability to love in that way, there has to be free will. 
okay? Free agency, that we have the ability to be able to make that choice for ourselves to love genuinely, to express love genuinely. There has to be free will. I think a lot of some of these big questions about God and like why this and why that come down to this whole thing of free will, that God has created a world with free will, that you have the ability to to love or not love. And so because of that, Hate has to exist as well. In a world with real love, there has to be the option for hate. And because of that, we see evil enter the world and people are harmed and people are hurt and there's all sorts of, uh, uh, of bad things that would happen in a world that has real love. And now, I don't want to go super long on this, but there's also this whole thing of natural evil, we would say, of like floods and earthquakes and tornadoes, right? So you're kind of like, well, what about that? Because that's not people choosing that. There's some choice that we have in that where if we live, if we choose to live in a floodplain and a flood comes, like that's, there's some free will involved in that. But even beyond that, I would say that I believe that God created a world when we had the Garden of Eden, when God created it where everything was perfect in that way, it didn't have that. It didn't have that natural evil. But when human sin entered the picture, it was all broken. That brokenness entered. And then now that, all, that even natural evil has entered. And so that's some of what I believe about this. Plus, there's this whole thing of why do you even know what good is? Why do you even know what, if something is good or bad? You know that because God, because of God, because God has placed that in you. Look at this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. It says, our conscience, so the thing inside us that like, helps us know right and wrong, right? Our conscience reveals to us a moral law whose source cannot be found in the natural world, thus pointing to a supernatural law giver, okay? That our sense of right and wrong helps point us towards a God who has given us that kind of ability, that kind of knowledge. And, or I put it this way, we only know what is good from God, and we know there is a God because only he could show us what is good? All right, are you with me on that? Okay, that's, that's how we even know that there is good is because of God. And I think about this, like, you think you're a good person, right? You kind of tend to think, like, I'm, I'm not the bad people. I'm, I'm a good person. You think you're a good person, but bad things happen to you. But I would venture to say you also think you're a bad person, you think, oh, I'm the worst. Like, I totally, I, I, I cheat, I steal, I lie, I've done wrong against people. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a bad person. But good things have happened to you, right? Why do we expect fairness? <laughs> we don't actually want fairness. Because we might even think, you know, with some of this, we think, why me? Like when something bad happens, we think, why me? But then we should also think, why not me, right? Why shouldn't it happen to me? What, what makes me so good that something bad shouldn't happen to me? We don't want what we deserve. Because what we deserve is utter condemnation. That's what we deserve. And the whole point of all of this that we do, the whole point of Jesus is that we don't get what we deserve. We deserve utter condemnation, but what Jesus gives us is grace. 
What Jesus gives us is grace that is mercy, the definition of grace, mercy we don't deserve. That's the whole beauty of the thing. I love this passage in Isaiah 61.10 because you think about what we deserve. Okay, what we deserve is, is like what we look like is sin. What we have is that we are sinful beings. And then what we even try to do then is we try to do good works to make up for that. Right? We try to do good to say, well, I know, I know I've, I've done this bad stuff, so if I go you know, serve at the, the soup kitchen and help the homeless, well, maybe that will make up for some of the bad stuff I've done. But here's the thing. God sees your sin. He sees that initially as dirty, but he sees the good works you do as filthy rags. Here's what he sees, and here's what he does. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So God, instead then of seeing you as, sin, as your sin, and instead of seeing you even as your attempts to do right, even when you've got that sin, what God does is he says, no, 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 no. Let me wrap you up with this robe of righteousness, with these beautiful garments of my salvation. And I don't see you as your sin. I don't see you as your attempts and all of your works. What I see you is this beautiful, beautiful picture of grace. I experienced this a little bit. I'll try and tell this story as quickly as possible because it could be really, really, really long. But when I was... Uh, I, when I was growing up, I felt like I was a good kid. You know, I was a pretty good kid growing up. And, uh, you know, I mean, I did normal kind of stuff wrong in my school. I got spanked about once a year. I got spanked at school, okay? Kids, like, right? Like, that was crazy. But uh, with a big old wood paddle, the whole deal. And I got spanked about once a year. So it's like one bad thing a year. I mean, that's not that bad. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, I just remember, like, being a kind of pretty good kid. I wanted to be a rule follower. I wanted to do what was right. And then I was starting to get, as I got in like middle school, early high school, kind of getting annoyed that the, it seemed like the bad kids were having fun and getting away with it, right? Like I was kind of frustrated by that whole thing and just thinking like, well, why shouldn't I just go have fun too? And so I remember it was actually like my junior year, I started to get into drinking and partying and into some of that kind of stuff. And then I actually uh, had a party at my house. It's like around this time of year, my junior year. I mean, I have a junior. It's kind of freaking me out. But um, like I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I had this party at my house. Tons of people come. My parents were out of town. They left town. I've told, I've told you, if you've been around here a while, you've probably heard this story. But like I, w my parents went out of town, left me home alone, which is stupid. Don't do that. Okay. And then I had a party at my house and all these people came, all sorts of different types. I was... You know, I was a little surfer kid, and there was a bunch of different types of people there at this party, from the surfer kids to the kind of the football player jock types to our St. Clemente version of gang members, and like all of uh, all of that. And and so you had like um, <laughs> you know, I had all these people there, and as my like 130 pound surfer kid self that I was, I was kind of scared of the St. Clemente version of gang members still, and. And so, like, these guys are coming, and they start, like, kind of messing with people, and people are getting thrown in the pool, and people are—stuff's uh, getting broken, and it's kind of getting intense and, and sketchy. And so I do what most kids do at their own party, is I call the cops on my own party. And— <laughs> 
they, they came, they broke up the party, they kicked everybody out, and then I'm just like, okay, that was Friday night, my parents are coming home on Sunday, the goal of my life is to not get in trouble and not get caught. And so I start cleaning and fixing and doing all that. The problem was these guys had come in and went in the far backyard and trampled my dad's vegetable garden, which was his love, his pride and joy. He had six foot, like, stalks of corn, like a little cornfield back there. I mean, it was crazy. It's not that big. And... It but was his love. They trampled it. And uh, so they, I clean up everything, but what I can't do is regrow vegetables and corn and, you know, all that. So I, maybe I could figure it out now, but I couldn't then. And so, <laughs> uh, but what I do then is I make it look like my friends had come over and like toilet papered my house and I cleaned it up and they must have gone in the backyard and trampled the vegetable garden. So my dad comes home. He sees everything. I explain everything. And I show him the vegetable garden, and he starts to cry. He literally starts to cry. And I look at him, and I say, I know. I can't believe my friends would do that. That's terrible. And I lie right into his face. And it was brutal that I did that. And so then a thing I didn't think about, and the reason that, you know, 16-year-old boys are idiots, is because I forgot that there's neighbors. And so <laughs> neighbors, <laughs> neighbors came and my parents are cleaning. They'd been out on the motorhome trip. They were cleaning their motorhome in the front yard. Neighbors say, hey, wow, what were you guys doing Friday night? There was cars lined up and down the street. It was amazing. My dad's like, what? Yeah, and so pulls me in to the bedroom, and then he says to me, I can't believe you could look at me and look at my face with a tear coming down my cheek and lie right into my face. It's not the party I'm mad about. It's that. Let me tell you, the bad kid's got away with it? Not me. <laughs> I, I didn't get away with it. There was consequences, big consequences. And, but the thing is with that, the thing that I really didn't think I would experience, and I did, was even though I looked my father right in the face as he cried, what I experienced from my dad, even though there were still consequences, is I experienced grace. I experienced forgiveness and I experienced love, even though I could look at him in that way and lie. And that, in that way, my dad showed me the love of the Father. And that's the kind of love and forgiveness that we think we can earn. No, we can't earn that love. We are clothed with it. We are given it. It is a robe of righteousness. It is a garment of salvation that we are given by our God. And so we are clothed with that, you guys. That's how God clothes us. But I want you to think about those clothes, not as like pajamas or like a robe, like when you think like in the morning, you know, you like put on a robe. I want you to think of it like work clothes, okay? Because I think our garments of salvation are work clothes. These garments of salvation don't mean like we sit around and don't do any work. The garments of salvation are God putting on our work clothes because we do good because we're made for it, not to earn salvation. We do good because that is what God created us to do. We don't earn what that love of the Father is for us, that free gift of salvation. We get it. We know this. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the thing. I want you to understand this, and I've been like 
really hammering down on it hard here. Salvation is a gift of grace we cannot earn. We have to know that. If we left this place not understanding that, we would be completely like twisting the entire gospel. The problem is everybody stops at verse 9 when we go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so we would walk in them. So we have to do what we are made by God to do, and we're made to do good works. So that's why our garments of salvation are work clothes. We put on that salvation that God has given us, and then we get to work. If we just stop at being saved, we've missed the whole half of the story, right? We just are saved and then blah, nothing. That's pointless. We want to move on towards doing what God has made us to do. And so we do good to bear fruit for God's kingdom. We do good to bear fruit for God's kingdom. I'm going to just rattle off a few verses here. Just here, just listen to them. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say, Jesus says. John fifteen sixteen, You didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. James 1, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. We are called to do something. Obedience equals doing something. All right? Obedience is not just hearing about God and like agreeing. Okay? Obedience equals doing something. So I want you to think about that. What has God made you to do? The spiritual gifts he has given you at that point of salvation. His, his, the talents and the abilities that you have in your life, whatever those are, that God has made you in a certain way to be able to make an impact and bear fruit for his kingdom. How has God shaped you to do something for him and bear fruit? And I even want us to think about it even in uh, this way of this thing we've been talking about a lot as a church, each one, reach one. Okay, we're saying, hey, for each one of us to reach someone with the gospel. And we've been talking about this concept for a couple years now. We've been talking about this and praying, Lord, you know, what, what would you have me do? Like every day, 1002 prayer. Lord, the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. Send me as a worker into the harvest. And so we think about all of that, like, Lord, send me. Me. Lord, send me. Lord, how would you use me? We pray through that. And this whole thing has been that each one of us would reach one person with the gospel of Jesus Christ by Easter of 2020. Okay, we've been doing this for a couple of years. Guess what? Easter of 2020 is next month. <laughs> okay, so it's kind of like we've been spending this time investing. And I think it's been awesome. We've been prayer. We've been uh, learning and being equipped about how to be a good neighbor and having chances to, to build relationships with our neighbors and others. But now's the time to say, okay, I want to invite. I want to invite. I've invested. Now I'm going to invite someone into a spiritual conversation, into a chance to come and to come with me to Easter. And so I encourage you with that, how God has been working in you and shaping you in these, this season of prayer. What does God now want you to do when it comes to this point of saying, I want to, I want to bear fruit for your kingdom. I want to see people experiencing 
the same joy and grace that I have in Jesus, I want to help my friends, neighbors, loved ones to be able to experience that as well. So that's why I just want you to be thinking about that for you. That's probably a way of doing something. So that's the thing. Obedience equals doing something. And so we do these good works. We do good to bring joy into the world. Whether good things happen to me, uh, if I'm to bad people or if bad things happen to good people, whatever, even though that all feels meaningless, we do good to bring joy into the world. And so even part of that is, I think, is just celebrating the good works that God is doing in us and through us. And so like I think about what are some of the things that we should celebrate? We should celebrate when we see that our lives and our hearts are transformed because we deeply love Jesus. Like celebrate that, that God is working in you and shaping you to have a heart that, that loves Jesus and, and a life that begins to look more like the life of Jesus. We celebrate that. We celebrate the awesome good works that have happened through our church of things like Operation Love, of serving widows in their time of need, of things like neighbor good, where we're able to care for those in need in our community through oil changes and bike repair and car washes and haircuts and food ministry and all sorts of that kind of stuff, or from the bridge ministry of uh, this incredible ministry of serving those with special needs in our community to uh, trips to refugee camps in Lesbos, Greece, or building houses in Mexico to our missionaries around the world, to people going to Moldova, people going to Albania, people going and serving orphans in Mexico, uh, our counseling ministry, prayer ministry, Stephen ministry, Celebrate Recovery, like just people that are helping each other, helping bear one another's burdens when it comes to the struggles that we have in this life and even just sort of regular life people helping people. A lot of times I think we think the church, um, the church is like the formal programs that I and others make up to do stuff, right? That is not the church, okay? That's part of the church. The church is the people gathered together. And then what happens is after we gather, we scatter and we go out and then we do good works that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. It's Matthew 5.16. That they would see your good deeds and then praise God because they see what each one of us do and just caring for a friend and sharing with someone that is in need, whatever that might be. That is the church being the church. So we celebrate the real good works. But then we look at this last part of this passage. This or at least verse 15. This part's crazy, Right? So I commended pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> it's like, eat, drink, and be merry is one of the, I mean, that's become just a sort of regular expression in the world, and that's a cultural expression. Eat, drink, and be merry. Might as well just do that. It's from the Bible. <laughs> uh, well, it's also like what it says is completely meaningless, all right, is we're meaninglessness under the sun because everything else is futile. You might as well just do this. And what I wanted to take a moment to explore a little bit is what does eat, drink, and be merry look like in a world with God? Okay, not under the sun. Because under the sun, it says without God, you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. That's the whole point of that. If God isn't, isn't real, if God doesn't exist, if God's not involved, yeah, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because there's no rhyme or reason to why any of this stuff happens. 
But in a world with God, what does eat, drink, and be merry look like? I think a couple things with this. One is, I think that we as people can have a a deep sense of enjoying God's provision. That God has provided for us. And even when you think of food and drink, even in the, the Bible... Oftentimes that celebration of the harvest, the celebration of the wheat harvest for food, and then the celebration of the harvest of grapes for the wine, that food and wine were symbols of God's blessing and God's provision. And there was deep um, celebration of that blessing and of that provision. And so we we have a sense of, okay, I want to enjoy what God has given. And even enjoying the very, uh, even throughout Ecclesiastes, kind of has a sense of enjoy the most simple things, the simple things that God has provided. I want to enjoy that. I want to enjoy that God has created this beautiful world. God has created this incredible, beautiful world filled with beautiful people. And I want to enjoy that. And you even think of going out into nature and just enjoying what God has created and then thinking through, Lord, how would I treat that creation? I would honor it. I would try to, I would try to treat what God had made well. If God presented to me his masterpiece, how would I treat his masterpiece? I would treat it well. And God says that each one of you are his workmanship, his masterpiece. So we treat one another well with dignity. I think that's even some of how we kind of think of this, of eat, drink, and be married. And then, um, and just even just to enjoy everything with a sense of gratitude, to be happy and joyful because God is with us. So then it kind of got me to this point where eat, drink, and be merry. And, and some of you know, you've heard me talk about this passage of scripture that's one of my favorites is Nehemiah 8.10. So you think about eat, drink, and be merry. In Nehemiah, you have the people of God have just been hearing from the scripture being read to them for the first time in a long time, and they begin to weep. And then the priest says to them, go, eat of the fat, Drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared, so share it. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I think this is a cool way to look at eat, drink, and be merry. Is that we are called as we hear from God to eat the fat, to drink the sweet, to celebrate. This this whole thing of have a feast and celebrate for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Eat, drink, and joy. And then where that took me is to what we're about to do. As we're about to take communion as a church. You think eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We remember and give thanks to Jesus as we eat the bread, drink the cup that gave us our ultimate joy. Amen? Amen. That is this, this incredible thing when you think about this, okay? Eat, drink, and be merry. And you, we, we eat the bread, all right? So we eat. That's part of it. And we take this bread. We remember what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He's with his disciples right before he's about to be killed. Right before he's about to go upon the cross to die for us. And he takes bread. It's the matzah bread. It's a bread that's kind of like a cracker. It's what will be passed around. And it's bread that has stripes and it is pierced. And and it, it looks like his body. And you take that matzah bread. He would take it and then he would break it. And then he passed it around. He said, this is my body which is given for you. As he takes that bread and as we eat that bread, we remember, we give thanks. We eat with with celebration of what God has done. And then he says, here's this cup of wine. And this cup of wine 
represents, Jesus says, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we remember as we drink from that cup, we remember that Jesus shed his blood for us upon the cross. And so when we eat and we drink and we remember that, we also remember that he didn't stay dead. He rose again and he came back to life in strength and power. And that is what gives us the ultimate joy that we have. And so I think for us, this whole thing where it was that at its most meaningless to eat, drink, and be merry was this most meaningless thing that could ever happen. Jesus completely redeems it to say, eat, drink, and have joy in me. It redeems this to what is its most meaningful. So let's remember that together now. Um, the elements are going to be passed after I pray here, and I encourage you to hold on to them until I come back up and I'll lead us. But just reflect and think about these things, about the sacrifice of Christ. Almighty God, we, we thank you that we do not live in a world devoid of meaning. It is not meaningless. But that's only because of you. It's only because of the work that you did upon the cross. As you gave your body, as you shed your blood for us. And so we remember and we give thanks. And we love you, Lord. I pray that each person in this room would be able to have a deep sense of the meaning that comes from this meal we will enjoy.